Hi, and welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. Are you interested to learn about encryption in Bitcoin Core? Today, we're talking about the V2 P2P transport protocol for Bitcoin Core, also known as BIP324. So as mentioned, this show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. Swan is a Bitcoin financial services company focused on Bitcoin education and making it easy for you to buy Bitcoin. So as many of you know, Swan makes it easy for you to auto DCA, automatically dollar cost averaging. So you can set up a plan and automatically stack and withdraw. Swan makes it easy for you to withdraw with automated free withdrawals. So once you get over a certain threshold, those coins are automatically sent into your wallet. Now Swan also makes lump sum purchases available. This is also known as smash buys. And Swan has a range of products for different kinds of people, whether you are a business entity, whether you want to set up an IRA and get Bitcoin inside of that. And there's also an advisors platform. And now recently Swan has a mobile application. So you can find this on Apple or Google search the Swan Bitcoin application and also learn about Bitcoin using the various educational materials that are available inside the application, such as some of the Swan Bitcoin Canon material. So if you want to sign up, go to swan.com slash Levera and you'll get a free $10 of Bitcoin dropped into your account when you set up your auto DCA plan. That's swan.com slash Levera. When it comes to Bitcoin hardware, CoinKite.com is making a range of products available here. Now, as we've seen, we're seeing exchanges go under or have financial problems. So always remember to self-custody your coins. With CoinKite, you can get the cold card. This is a leading Bitcoin hardware signing device in the industry. It has two secure elements. It has NFC support. You can use it air-gapped. You can initialize and set up this device without even plugging it into a computer. You can easily use it with wallets such as Spectre Desktop or Sparrow, and it's a very reliable performer. Now, for those of you interested in a cheaper device, you could look at the Tap Signer. This is also available at CoinKite.com, and this one is more about $40. And this also has NFC support. You can use it easily with wallets such as Nunchuck. So over at CoinKite.com, you can get a range of Bitcoin hardware and use the code Levera for a discount on your cold cards. Blockstream Green is an industry-leading Bitcoin and Liquid wallet. Gain access to powerful features such as multi-signature security, full node verification, and Tor support. Blockstream Green gives you that option with using their multi-signature shield. So one key is held on your device and another is on Blockstream's servers, enabling you to protect your wallet with two-factor authentication. Now, you also have time locks or a third backup key to ensure that you still retain full ownership of your funds. Blockstream Green also has integrations with hardware wallets such as Blockstream Jade, Ledger, and Trezor devices to get you the best of both worlds. Cold storage of your private keys combined with Blockstream Green's full suite of features. So Blockstream Green is available on iOS, Android, or desktop. If you're interested, go and get it over at blockstream.com green. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Hey, Stefan. Hello. Hey. Yeah, so thanks guys for joining me and interested to chat about what you're working on and especially what's going on with uh, P2P transport, a V2 P2P transport protocol for Bitcoin Core. Uh, I think... Bitcoin. Yeah, for of course, for Bitcoin. <laughs> so I think Peter and Tim, I think listeners probably know you. Drew, do you want to just, just give a quick intro for yourself just for listeners to know who you are? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so I'm Drew. I started working on... Uh, I started studying Bitcoin around late 2019, primarily because there was just one day I just realized that I'm, I was skeptical because I had been previously skeptical, which was kind of bad. So I started studying it. And um, in 2020, uh, there was this day my wife was like, oh, you know, it feels like you could study this thing for a decade. But how about like, how about you do something? You seem very engaged. I was talking about it a lot. And she, she wanted me to put my energy into doing something, which was very helpful. I reached out to Amidi. I found her blog post and she mentored me uh in in the early phases uh which i'm very grateful for uh and yeah over time i just kind of got interested in the p2p side i was lucky to kind of get interested in bit 324 and uh, in 2021 Yonish uh said um, i should try to just move the entire project forward uh, that's when i started to reach out for advice uh and met peter and tim and we've been well, I met Peter before that, I think. But yeah, we started collaborating after that. On this project. Yeah. Okay, great. And so do you mind, uh, could one of you spell out some of the background for this project? As I understand, well, you mentioned Jonas Schnelli. I know he was working on this 
in years gone by. Could you give us a bit of the background of this project and where it came from? Yeah, I just have it open here. So I'll just take a quick crack. And But I wasn't around in these phases. Yeah. I'm sure Peter and Tim can add more context. Uh, so in around March 2016 is when uh, I, I found the first kind of um, mentions of something called BIP 151, which Yonish Nelly proposed. And that was uh, for uh, peer-to-peer uh, encryption. And... Uh, in March 2019, that BIP was superseded with a new design called BIP 324. And he, st- he presented it at Breaking Bitcoin, I think, in 2019, and the project had some momentum. Uh, around 2020, uh, we lost a little bit of steam on the project. Uh, there were some uh, design changes that were made that he executed on. But as you know, he kind of moved on from uh, core development about last year. So I was really interested in the project. I found it really fun to study. Uh, And so I wrote up all these notes. I wanted to chat with him. I wanted to help. And then August 2021, I remember I had a call with him and um, he said, you should just take it over and and, and take it to the finish line. So in August 2021 is when he transferred ownership and uh, we just released the new BIP in October 2022. So it's been a long road but it's also something that's very, very kind of low level and fundamental and we want to get it right. It's hard to change these things multiple times. So that's kind of the long history. Great. Yeah, I, I think maybe a, a bit of background, the BIP 150 and BIP 151 proposal from 2016, 17, 18, which was when there was some activity around that, was a very straightforward design. We want to just add encryption and authentication to the protocol, like uh, add a way, you know, first encrypt and then add a way for nodes to verify who, who is who is who. And I think as, as we started iterating on that and, and got some eyes from people more experienced with cryptography, you sort of realize that there are actually lots of, you know, t- tiny improvements that could be made like for example we we started caring much more about hiding the fact that there is even a bitcoin connection in the first place or we started caring about uh, the ability to to hide what is going through the line even in terms of traffic patterns uh, which isn't actually included in bip 324 but it does include affordances for doing that later on and on the authentication side, the idea for uh, authentication, which started with a very simple digital signature scheme, BIP 150, we realized there are far more private ways of, of uh, authenticating. And we really care about that because the, the Bitcoin network doesn't have a notion of identities and we don't really want to introduce a notion of identities. But at the same time, like sometimes people connect to a node they know who it is, like it is your own, uh, in, in which case we, we want something better than just trust that the IP address is yours or uh, force people to run over Tor or a VPN or something of that nature. So that proposal started living its life on its own and we're, we're now working on, on actually a protocol for that, but that, you know, we'll try to get a paper written about that, get it actually published. And we're not pushing for any of that at, at this point in time, while the encryption side is moving forward, That's and that is BIP 324 now. So it's an evolution of, of that original BIP 151 idea, but I think it's, it's a lot better. Yeah, sure. Uh, Tim? Yeah, and just l- let me add to to what what Truth said here. So I think this this proposal or the entire um, idea of encrypting peer to peer traffic has been along for uh, has been around for for a very long time. But I think there was really there were a period of a few years where there was no progress on this project. And here I think Truth really really helped because oh, yes. um, he built up all the the momentum and and kept us busy with with questions and all the stuff. So I I was always interested in working on this, but it felt like I had a lot of other projects and, and I think it was the same for a lot of other people. And back then I think Jonas was Jonas Schnelli was pretty pretty alone and he has some background in crypto but he's not like a trained cryptographer so um, he, he needed help from, from other people. And back then I think no one really wanted to wanted to um, commit to, to work on this. But uh, this has changed when Truth picked up and finally, uh, <laughs> yeah, built up all this this momentum, yeah. and now we could work on it. So, if I could ask, just to bring this for, back to a level for listeners, what exactly is being publicly shared by our Bitcoin nodes 
today just to just to help people understand what is the you know what's the current state today um in terms of what are we sharing publicly like just every transaction every you know everything how do we think about that yeah so yes everything and the peer-to-peer protocol primarily shares three things you can think of it as a gossip network that relays individual transactions so mempool transactions and unconfirmed transactions uh blocks obviously um try to propagate blocks across the network as fast as possible and third ip addresses of other nodes uh, to connect to and well all, all of these things have sort of privacy implications to them but it is not like the, the argument for encrypting this is isn't trivial because essentially all of it is public data like everyone will see every transaction everyone will see every block ip addresses not so much but even there it's very hard to to hide so why do we care about encryption is is really yeah metadata like a transaction itself well sure the transaction is public but where it originates which node broadcasted it first that is perhaps private information and sure there are ways around that you know you can broadcast through tor or whatever try to hide by submitting it to a block explorer site but really we, we just want to raise the bar of, of the whole network, make it more expensive for attackers to find this out. And for blocks, a similar story is like, if, if someone can figure out where a block originates first, um, they can locate where miners are located, uh, which is, isn't, well, we, we like to have the possibility that miners run anonymously uh, on the network, like gantry, the barrier to entry should be low and uh, that shouldn't expose them to eclipse attacks or or uh, other attacks on on their nodes so that's something we care about and i think it it's important to have that bip324 doesn't fix any of this all all it does is raise costs because by its nature with the bitcoin network consisting of effectively as interchangeable nodes that all do the same thing there's no notion of am I connecting to the right node? Every, every node is equal. Uh, so uh, an attacker can, you know, they can man in the middle connection because you, you don't know who you're talking to. Or they could just spin up their own nodes, right, and get you to connect to them. Um, the point is just that all of this is significantly more expensive than just looking at transactions that go over the wire. If you're a sufficiently powerful attacker with control over ISPs or even bigger, well, you can today just see the transaction go over the wire, do that with enough connections, and you see where it's coming from. I see. And so as an example, today we see some of the chain surveillance companies come out with a report saying, oh, look, we saw all these use of the Bitcoin blockchain or users of Bitcoin in this and that country. And because it's all just being publicly broadcast, the transactions, the blocks, uh, and as you mentioned, the IP. So, uh, and currently, as you said, um, there are users trying to use the Onion router, Tor, as an example. And I know Bitcoin has support for that. And I know also there's support for I2P also. So maybe we'll have a bit of a conversation around what that is. So just to summarize then, the current state of play is basically transactions, blocks, and IP are basically, if you're not doing anything to hide, that's all just being publicly put out there. So somebody else could know who broadcast that transaction. So for example, they could say this transaction came from Peter's node. Or as an example, if you are a miner, I guess they would know where the mining pool is based out of, right? Like they would, they, they would see where the mining pool is based out of. And so obviously that makes it a bit more hard to mine privately. So I just want to, I want to add like a couple, couple things there, which are related. So I think when people think about privacy, just to summarize that in a slightly different way, when people think about privacy, they think about confidentiality of the contents of something. However, in a public permissionless system, it's the metadata that is critical. That's all you can keep private, really, because by definition, everything else is public. And so the reason privacy of the metadata is important is one, you know, it's also, it is, it is all the stuff you talked about. Where did the transaction originate? Where did the block originate? But it's also that it's not really possible to have censorship resistance without privacy. So when we raise the bar on privacy, that lets us raise the bar on censorship resistance as well. So privacy kind of has to be the prerequisite goal of something that's trying to raise the bar on censorship resistance because 
when you when you raise the bar on censorship resistance, you're trying to avoid the censor being able to infer something which lets them censor. And to and by increasing privacy, you can make that harder to infer. And this is where what Peter was saying is very important is that it's a public permissionless system. So you can't really avoid a man in the middle attack because there's no because the kind of security is in the proof of work piece. But you can raise the cost to infer something about you. Anyway, yeah, that, that's just kind of what I want to say. Yeah. And as a follow-up to what, what Truth said about um, censorship resistance, I think the, the game in censorship resistance is always raising the collateral um, cost or the collateral damage for the for the attacker. So, for example, say your, your internet service provider wants to censor a certain Bitcoin transactions. And what the ISP can always do is just pull the plug and disconnect you from, from the network entirely, right? But... This is probably something that an ISP doesn't want to do, right? Because then you you won't pay them anymore, or they they lose customers and whatever. Another thing the sensor could do is just uh, censor every every Bitcoin connection. This is a little bit less collateral damage, but still, it's it's a pretty pretty heavy form of censorship. Um, but now, in the current situation where the ISP can see every transaction on the wire, it could just look at the transaction and censor only specific transactions. So once we, once for for the sensor, all transactions on the wire look look the same. The sensor can't make that choice anymore. So there, there's only the choice of either disrupting or censoring Bitcoin connections entirely for a particular user, or, or allowing Bitcoin connections. But because as soon as we add privacy, we, we remove the ability that the sensor can specifically look at, at the transaction and, and censor it, or specifically look at the block and censor it. So this is really why privacy helps also with censorship resistance. Yeah. Well, they, they can still spin up their own node and, and look at everything right. and then still selectively censor. And I think it's important to point this out, that this is a limitation, uh, but, but it does raise the cost for the sensor. Like, they, they can't just passively observe most of your connection and just here and there intervene. They, they really need to, you know, intercept the, the whole connection from the beginning to the end and I see. raising costs. Yeah, right. And uh, so... Also from reading the page and also just I've heard of this concept online of deep packet inspection. So is that related to this at all? If, if you could explain that for us. I think yes. So deep packet inspection in general is a term that means that a firewall or some, some network device doesn't only look at, at headers or let's say protocol metadata like IP addresses, uh, TCP, UDP port numbers, and other things to decide whether a connection should be allowed. This is what firewalls often do, right? They, for example, they don't allow incoming SMTP connections. SMTP is an email protocol on normal desktop computers because they don't need this and this prevents attacks and so on. But deep packet inspection really goes a layer deeper and, and means that the firewall will look at the contents or really the data that is transmitted uh, to decide whether a connection is, is allowed or not. Or in this case, maybe whether, uh, as I previously said, like a transaction is allowed or not. Or, yeah. Yeah. Tim, is, is it right that just normal inspection is doing stuff based on metadata that the router has to act on anyway. Like if you look at the IP address of the port, you have to forward it anyway. And so you would be acting on information that you have to process to do your primary job as the firewall or the router. And then deep packet inspection is looking at the contents, which is doing additional work to then do something else that's not your primary function. Is that kind of right? I think this is one right way to, to look at it. I guess the, the terms are not like defined 100%, right? Like where's the where's really the distinction between like normal processing and deep packet inspection? I think there is no there is no formal definition, but I think what what you say is the is, is essentially the right thing in particular for, for for routers they anyway need to look at IP addresses as you say, right? Sure. I think you can think of deep packet inspection as layer violating like I think that's exactly what, what you're yeah. what you're saying. Like, uh, sure, it has to route packets, so it has to look at that where the packet is going. But a router isn't supposed to look at the contents of packets, and so when it does, we, we call that going a step deeper. Yeah. Okay. And so, just to explain, uh, this is another term I've seen. If you could help explain this for us, what is a peer-to-peer -peer byte stream? Is that is that the you know? Could you explain that? 
Yeah, I can I can take a crack at that. One. It's um it, when we say that in the bib, what what we are referring to is just if you take all the contents of the TCP/IP uh, packets and put them together, that's the byte stream. It doesn't have timing information, what time the packet arrived. It doesn't have all the other metadata about it. It's just the when we refer to the byte stream, we're referring to the concatenation of all the contents of the TCP/IP packets on the wire. I see. Okay, so. Yeah, could you just walk us through a little bit about this proposal and what is proposed to change just so that node runners and listeners out there can understand what's going on? Yeah, so the the goal is opportunistically encrypting every connection. So as, as soon, the goal is whenever two nodes talk to each other uh, and they both support this proposal, uh, they can negotiate an encrypted connection between them and all that is encrypted is the transport between these two nodes. So it's not an end-to-end -end encryption or anything like that. It's just the connection between the two nodes. And Yeah, I see. So if I understand it right, then it's like we might do a version communication and say, oh, I'm, I'm a V2 node and you're a V2 node. Okay, now we're going to talk in this. It's not that simple. Um, that, that, that's arguably what, what the, what the BIP-151 proposal did. It would start as a V1 connection and then sort of negotiate to upgrade to an encrypted one. But there's an obvious leak there because you've done the negotiation to the higher version in an unencrypted protocol. And that, I think that that is the primary change that BIP324 does. Uh, encrypted connections start out encrypted from the very first byte that is being sent effectively. And the, the way this works is you, you, the node making the connection really has to have a reasonable guess that the node they're trying to connect to supports V2, and they will just start a V2 handshake, which is encrypted from the beginning. And if it fails, it can retry with the V1. So in, in that sense, it is kind of a negotiation, right? It's not just a, it's not an explicit negotiation. You just try to speak V2 to someone, and well, if the other node just disconnects you, then probably the other node doesn't like V2. Yeah. So in in Bitcoin P2P, we we talked about uh, ad, we talked about three kinds of gossip traffic before, right? Transaction blocks and adders, which is addresses of potential peers you could connect to. Uh, we have a mechanism called service bits in that adder gossip. So let's say your node and my node are connected and your node will occasionally query my node or sometimes my node will just advertise to you a bunch of potential people you could connect to sometime in the future should you so like. When that those addresses are gossiped, certain services supported by those nodes are also gossiped. For example, SegWit was one of these, right? Does that peer support SegWit? So that way, when you make your traffic with them, you can you can do what is appropriate for that service. We have added a service bit flag for BIP324 support in the proposal, which means that let's say Tim is running a BIP324 supportive node. When my node tells your node, hey, Tim's node is a potential node you could connect to in the future when you're looking for a new peer, I can also tell you, oh, by the way, Tim supports BIP324. So you can start out uh, with a completely what we call uh, in the proposal pseudo-random byte stream, which means you don't have to do this thing where you start out in clear text and then upgrade. What you can do is you can start out encrypted and you can downgrade uh, to clear net. If it so turns out that I was falsely advertising to you, uh, let's say that Tim's node is supportive of BIP324. What that accomplishes is, otherwise what I could do is if Tim doesn't support BIP324 and I tell you that it supports it, you would try an encrypted connection and then he, his node wouldn't understand it and then you wouldn't be able to connect to him. So I could attack his node in that way. But because you are going to downgrade, it's that attack is not possible. Uh, but yeah, that's the whole story on the signaling, I think, side of it. And I guess one other question for listeners that might be thinking, does this mean even from the very start of a new Bitcoin node, like straight from initial block download or is this more like once you're up and going or is it more like you would need to first know a v2 peer to connect to if you want it to be private from the get-go i mean th this goes to the question of of how do you discover ip addresses to connect to uh, to, to answer your question yes it is from the very beginning encrypted as long as you know that the node you're gotcha. connecting to supports it um 
today there are Bitcoin Core uses a number of mechanisms for gathering IP addresses. There are the DNS seeds, there are uh, fallback IP addresses hard-coded in the binary that get updated every uh, release. And there's obviously the IP addresses that just get rumored on the network, plus whatever the user manually adds on command line or config file. Um, and not all of these mechanisms support giving the service flags along with them. Uh, DNS seeds kind of, uh, but really through a hack because we just say that we have different DNS names that resolve to different subset of nodes based on what flag you're for. But really the only thing that, that supports telling another node directly, these are the service flags supported is, is the peer-to-peer -peer protocol. So IP addresses that get gossiped. So before you get to that stage, I guess very first connections, at least for some time, uh, will probably not get the encryption. Uh, does that match people's understanding? Yeah, I think I think there's a little nuance, so I just want to repeat it. Basically, when so uh, going back to our example, right? Your node and my node are connected. If my node tells you about potential peers, that protocol has service bit. I'm going to give you the service bits. But on the other hand, let's say uh, Peter and Peter is running a DNS seed node, right? So uh, let's say your node just comes online and you don't know of any peers. You are going to query him for potential peers. Now, his seed is aware of the signaling for BIP324 support, but you would have to query for it. And at in the beginning, when there are very few BIP324 supportive peers, uh, we don't think it is reasonable to change the default to query for BIP324 supportive peers so you only get encrypted peers. People can still choose to do that. Perhaps it makes sense to add a command line flag or something, but it does not make sense as a default. Once the majority of the network is supportive of BIP324, that is a change we could make. And so then even your initial connections uh, for IBD and such could be encrypted. Uh, but it's, it's a little bit about that adoption curve and getting to a point where that default makes more sense. Back to the show in a moment. At a time like this, when there's a lot of transactions flying, mempool.space is the place to view this. It's a transaction and blockchain visualizer. Bitcoin is a multi-layer ecosystem and mempool.space helps you by covering this entire ecosystem. You can see the mempool and the projected blocks. You can see the blockchain. You can even see second layer net networks such as the Lightning Network. It has a Lightning Explorer, which allows you to see the different Lightning nodes and see what kind of fees they're charging, who has channels open with who. And it's just a really cool tool that you can even use yourself. It's free and open source. You can install it on your own software or on your own node rather and use it to view the Bitcoin blockchain. Now, if you're with an enterprise, mempool.space offers customized mempool instances with your company's branding. So if you're interested to learn more, go to mempool.space slash enterprise. At times like these, with exchanges blowing up, there's never been a more important time to learn to self-custody your coins, especially your larger cold stack. With Unchained Capital, you can easily create a multi-signature vault. Now, you can do this for free on the website. Just go to unchained.com. You can set up with them. You can create the vault yourself if you're savvy enough. Now, you can bring two hardware devices. Or alternatively, if you need some help with this setup process, they have a concierge onboarding. So you can pay them. They'll send you some devices if you need them. They'll do a call with you and walk you through the process, even if you've never held your own keys before. And remember, by doing this, you are helping remove single points of failure. So this allows us to even make one or two mistakes in certain circumstances without losing all of our coins. So unchained.com slash concierge is the website here. And use code Levera for a discount on your package. And now back to the show. So for the show today, Bitcoin Core contributors and developers are joining me. They are Dhruv, Peter Willer, and Tim Roofing. So now onto the show with Dhruv, Peter, and Tim. I see. Yeah. So basically it's early days, uh, but the idea is that eventually, like if enough of the Bitcoin network updates to speak V2 P2P, so to speak, then then it might actually make sense for that from that point of view. Okay. So... So you mentioned this idea of opportunistic transport encryption. So I, I presume that's what we're talking about here is this idea of if both of the nodes can speak V2, that's what we're talking about here with opportunistic. Um, and you've also mentioned this idea of encryption without authentication. Could you explain a little bit about like what does that mean? Right. So 
let me first add some some other comment. Um, we we always say uh, we sometimes say v2, we sometimes see say uh, pip 324, right? It's just uh, it's just the same thing here. Just for the listener who who may be confused about this, it's just the the pip the Bitcoin improvement proposal proposes the version two of the peer to peer protocol. So when when we use these terms, they actually mean the same. Yeah, so we asked about authentication. Uh, sorry, about encryption without and without authentication. And this is um, usually uh, a little bit of a of a strange thing because usually we we can't really have this because let's say I want to talk to Peter in a in a secure way or in a confidential way. When when I say confidential, it already kind of um, includes the identity of the person that I want to talk to, right? Like, because I, I need to say, okay, um, I want to have this conversation uh, such that only Peter can can read what I say or can read what I write and, and not some someone else. And this kind of means that we can't really have encryption in, in a strict sense without uh, some form of, of authentication. Now, um, but what what we can do in a in an open network such as Bitcoin, where where there are no real um, identities, as, as Peter mentioned earlier, it's just we we can still just enable encryption and hope we talk to to a node that's not spying on us in a sense. And now what could happen is that uh, we actually talk to to an attacker. Uh, maybe that's that's just because this is a node which is malicious, or this is an attacker that inserts uh, itself into the connection maybe between me and and the honest node and then uh, place this kind of man in the middle attack and at that moment again like our encryption is not really helping us because I, I now i can't tell that i'm talking to this malicious peer instead of an honest peer because again there's no real difference between a malicious peer or an honest peer i mean of course peers can be malicious or, or honest they can spy on you they can't spy on you but it's not that i can tell the difference um, i just connect to i just connect to a random node and a random peer and um whether this peer is 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 acting malicious or reading my data or like i don't know reporting my my data to 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 some agency or whatever this is something i i can't know at that point so the idea is that um again as peter said we're just raising the cost for um, and raising the the bar for the attacker because now uh, the attacker either has to spin up their own nodes and hope that um, we connect to them or they can connect to us or they really have to actively uh, interfere with with connections and not just uh, be passively listening on the on the connections so i, I think this is a good point to, to go into the difference between active and passive attacks uh, so the, the definition for that is just a passive attacker is someone who can observe what is going through the wire but cannot change it and an active attacker is a non-passive attacker. Um, but even within active attackers, I think we can distinguish multiple degrees of, of activity. The, the simplest active attack that is possible today on the network is, go back to that example of, of an ISP willing to censor one specific transaction, well, they can just see that transaction on the wire and not relay it. That, that's sort of the, they don't need much state, they can just look at the wire, what goes to the wire, you know, delay it by a bit, look at the byte, see, oh, here's a transaction, I'm not going to uh, pass it through. A slightly higher level is what would be, uh, well, actually, it's a significantly higher level, is what an attacker would need to do to interfere with BIP324. That is, they basically need to run their own BIP324 implementation on both sides of the connection. So really, the 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 honest node is talking to the attacker. The attacker forwards all the data to another connection, which forwards it using BIP324 to another node. And this is in principle detectable because nodes compute a session ID. And if these nodes have a means of communicating out of band, like they're both mine nodes and I can like look at the session ID, I, I will notice that they're different because now there are two separate encrypted connections uh, from the different nodes to 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 the attacker, but yeah, so so this is a, a more expensive and more detectable active attack 
than just one that drops certain transactions because they basically need to intercept the entire connection. Every byte they go, they can't selectively do this anymore. And I'd say an even higher cost is just the attacker running their own nodes and get you to connect to them, which is not as detectable perhaps, but it's also not as powerful because sometimes people make deliberate connections to a certain IP address. I see, yeah. So as an example, just so I'm understanding this, Right now, I've heard of attacks or ideas where people can try to look across the network and see, oh, where did that transaction originate? Or where did I first see that transaction? But in in a BIP324 world, like hypothetically, in order for that kind of attack to happen, the attacker might need to be running a lot of nodes all around the network and hope that his node, one of his nodes was the first to be connected to and sent that transaction, right? That's one possibility. Uh, another is that they man in the middle connection. So if, if the attacker has the ability to actively intercept and actively attack connections being made by honest nodes between each other, they don't actually need to run their own node. It's more like inserting nodes in, in between. You don't know who you're talking to. I see. But that's that's also not an easy task to achieve, right. especially if Bitcoin nodes are connecting to, you know, eight connections or ten connections and things, right? Right. And also because if you if you look at, for example, your your ISP who would be able to perform like a passive attack very easy, like just get all the data on the wire. I mean, like they control the, the routers, right? So they can just dump the, all the data that goes through through the network. But it's much harder to perform an active attack because they, they need to run up their machines in the sense that the network infrastructure is the core of the network is typically not like real computers there are routers and cables and and all that kind of stuff so of course you could in theory perform those active men in the middle attacks but it basically means that the, either the router has to do this and this puts a lot of load on the on the router or the router has to forward like your connection in a malicious way to some uh, machine uh, in some data center run by the isp again and then this ip needs uh, this this uh, machine needs to do the heavy processing and uh, basically emulate the full v2 connection so this is uh, just from from the amount of cost that is required much much higher because like really routers uh, are built to basically move data from one wire to to the other wire really 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 fast and they are not supposed to just uh, by design not supposed to to look at the contents because this will will be very very slow and if, if you if you would try to run a like one one of these attacks on, on, a, on a router or do this on a, on a large scale that's not easy with the current with the current hardware so this is why this really puts a raises the bar for attackers like your isp for example yeah yeah on that i want to i want to add a little thing which is one thing one uh theme two things one is a lot of the themes of the project remind me of this phrase bitcoin is money for enemies so like you, you know, you're, you don't know your peers usually. And so Bitcoin lets you, it, 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 there are incentives which make it so you can, you can trust the data coming in. There's, there's proof of work, there's incentives. And so uh, you'll see a lot of that theme in here. That's one thing I wanted to say. So every time I think about these things, as I'm hearing them once again, I'm, I'm thinking of that phrase. And the other thing I want to say is before BIP324, an ISP could say, or, you know, a government could go to an ISP and say, I want you to drop all Bitcoin traffic. They could literally look at the word Bitcoin version, VRAC in these packages, drop it, right? And they already have the tech to do that, um, especially places like China, you see this, right? They, they, can, they can do DPI pretty easily. But now, instead of blacklisting Bitcoin, they would have to whitelist protocols. They would have to say, drop everything that you don't understand because the byte stream is pseudo-random. So they would have to drop everything that they cannot understand. That might include proprietary protocols between large corporations that would result in a hit to economic activity. That would, that would, it just kind of raises that bar of, it's just like not as easy to isolate this traffic and just be like, shut this down, this one thing. Uh, and that goes back to the point of collateral damage Tim was making earlier. That is what raises the collateral damage if they were to try to censor on a large scale. Yeah, so put in other words, it's like saying it's not easy for IS or making it so that it's not easy for an ISP or a government to stop specifically Bitcoin connections. They would have to stop a lot more than that. And in so doing, they would cause all this additional damage. Like, mm -hmm. let's say some corporate server wants to connect to some other guy with Zoom or, uh, encrypted. 
then they might have to stop that too. And so then it's it just because it makes it harder for people to, I guess you're saying, to single out the Bitcoin connection and stop that only. That's, yeah. that's what we're talking about, right? Still not impossible, but harder. That's the that's that would be like yeah the thing. Right, or at least that, that's the vision. I mean, currently, even even if we even if every node now would run um, V2, um, it would still be very easy to single out uh, Bitcoin connections just by looking at the um, at the TCP port number. So the the way like. Uh, um, this this works in the internet is that you every every machine has a has an address right you have some kind of IP address but now you of course you want to have more than one connection so to be able to distinguish multiple connections you have something like like port numbers so I can connect to you on on port 80 maybe if you're a web server I can connect to to you also on some other ports to get some other kind of service and also Bitcoin uses very specific ports and this is still something um, that is very easy to see even for for routers nowadays or for firewalls um, but by adding encryption to the protocol, we basically later later uh, groundwork for for getting uh, getting rid of this too. So, of course, we could just also now move to different um, different port numbers. For example, I uh, I could run even an unencryption uh, unencrypted Bitcoin node today on on a um, port that's usually used for web traffic for HTTP traffic. Uh, but of course, it would kind of not be that super helpful because now the uh, firewall could still see, uh, look at the traffic and see, okay, there's still this, literally the SS truth set, the word Bitcoin in there in, in the first few bytes. So it's very easy to distinguish. And now if we, if we encrypt the connection, we get rid of that uh, easy way to um, spot the Bitcoin protocol. And then um, this makes it much easier now to move to other port numbers and make this look like some arbitrary other protocol. And that's Project Peter's doing, right? In parallel? Yeah, yeah. so th there is some work ongoing in Bitcoin Core in, in uh, a relatively recent release, maybe 22 or 23. A change was made that removes the strong preference for connecting to nodes on the standard ports. So that there has historically the Bitcoin Core code base and the Satoshi code base, it, it originated from, uh, have had this very strong preference to pretty much only connect to non-port A333 nodes if there are no A333s available. Um, like it was an incredibly strong preference uh, that, that for some reasons, uh, existed but due to how the database of ip addresses works today the reason for for that no longer held ha hasn't held for 10 years basically so we removed that preference and so now you can run a node on an alternative port and it will get connections from these newer bitcoin core nodes however the default is still 8333 uh, and if we actually want to uh, get, get rid of that that i mean that, that's a much longer term project but that is an obvious necessity if we care about hiding the existence of nodes in the first place because running on port 8333 yeah. is, is a big flag saying hello bitcoin node here so uh, all, all the encryption yeah. won't, won't do much then yeah. yeah i see but as you're saying it's one step on the the way so you also mentioned i think uh, this idea of upgradability so maybe that's a good point if you could mention a little bit about upgradability of pip 324 yeah so because we take this step of making the byte stream pseudo random like from the very first and, and let, let me repeat that because significant design effort went into making sure that this is the case um, so that there are really no markers whatsoever and there's no magic bytes that get sent no negotiation that's op open in clear text like from the very first byte every byte is random or from the perspective of an attacker due to that it obviously means there is no version negotiation beforehand so we couldn't create a v3 that is detectable by looking at the bytes on the wire uh, unless that removes that pseudo randomness again see the random means it it can be anything so it, it must cover everything with the exception of well if it if the first 12 bytes look like a v1 connection then we're going to interpret it as a v1 connection but everything else we're going to interpret as v2 this obviously means that if we wanted to introduce a v3 where do you put that 
The answer is, of course, well, you start as a V2, which is already encrypted. So from a perspective of an attacker, they're already equivalents. So you start as a V2 and then upgrade to V3. And we, we felt that because of the pseudorandomness, we really needed an in-protocol upgrade mechanism and negotiation mechanism for future versions. And so what those future upgrades could, could include is we could think about a post quantum cryptography negotiation, for example. This is something that would be come at an extremely high cost to introduce to Bitcoin at the consensus level, because post-quantum schemes, signature schemes have very large keys or very large signatures. But for just key negotiation, post-quantum schemes are, are, are very reasonable these days, and there's active efforts on standardizing them. So uh, we could imagine that just, you know, we, we start off with the V2 as we propose it now. In a couple of years, an extension gets proposed that, you know, start with V2, do everything it did, but then additionally run, let's now negotiate a key using this other mechanism. And the result is, is secure if either the traditional uh, elliptic curve-based cryptography is, uh, holds or the new one holds. Uh, another one that, that we've already touched upon is, is this uh, possibility of, of an optional authentication scheme later that would only really take place between nodes who, who do care where, where they're running. But obviously, many other things, uh, you know, adding compression to messages or, or... Yeah, sure. Can I add one thing to the, yeah, um, the post-quantum? post-quantum stuff um, because it's interesting to, to think about it you 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 may think okay why why would it even be useful to add post-quantum encryption on the p2p layer if if it's so much harder to update the core network in the sense that okay it's great that the attacker now uh, can't break my privacy or it's not even true right we're, we're just raising the bar to for, for for breaking privacy but now the attacker can steal all my money if, if he gets a quantum computer so what, what what's the point of this and the um the answer here is really um different different timelines so um, what you could do now as an attacker against privacy you could just capture all the data that's currently transmitted right and store it for i don't know 30 years 50 years in the hope that you can decrypted maybe after after 50 years and um, i don't know if, if bitcoin still exists in 50 years if my money is, is still there or whether we move to a, a post-quantum scheme or or not in the core of the protocol for for storing the funds or not um, maybe maybe we did but this is something we only need to uh, do when there is a um, quantum computer so because at that point you you can uh you you can steal the money and this is but this is kind of different to this attack where you um, capture all the data on the on the peer-to-peer -peer network now and try to decrypt it in, in 50 I, years I, I think a, a simple way of putting this is in the case of encryption you want to protect from the future you're trying to create privacy for something happening now ideally for for some sub time in the future that people can't figure out what you did. While for, for signatures, you sort of want to protect the past in, in like, sure, the, the, I don't have this argument. Yeah, well, oh. let, let me give it another try. Let's say um, I have some Bitcoins stored now under an elliptic curve public key, right? And I have the private key for this. And uh, let's say now there is a risk uh, that uh, I don't know, there's a quantum computer in, in a few years or something like this. Now, at least in, in theory, of course, this raises a ton of other questions. Um, but what, what we could do is we could introduce a post-quantum secure signature scheme in Bitcoin. And that would mean that at that point in time, I can send my Bitcoin stored under the elliptic curve key to, to, a, key of the, to a public key of the post-quantum scheme. And at that point, the private key of my old elliptic curve public key is useless, right? It's the attacker could could get it. I could actually publish it, and it wouldn't help the attacker because no money is stored um, under this key anymore. And this is why we can uh, basically make that upgrade again. Like there are a lot of caveats and open questions here, but in, in theory, we can make that update when there's really concern about a post quantum or a quantum attacker. Whereas for privacy, again, if you if you store the data now and you have a quantum computer in 30 years, you could decrypt it then. So this is really what, what makes a difference here. I see, yeah. So it could help you uh, make that shift theoretically in that post-quantum world, let's say. 
also, I guess another question people might be thinking is, does BIP324 or V2 impose a lot of additional costs to running a Bitcoin node, either computationally or from a bandwidth perspective? I I think um, sometimes we get very lucky that Satoshi did some things early on that were later at at that time i don't i'm not really sure why they were done but later it turns out that they were more expensive than they needed to be or uh, and we can take we basically end up (laughs) using that uh, simplifying the scheme so that overall this does not cost more um, or at least not by very much right like it's about i think one benchmark is 97 percent as fast as the previous um previous protocol uh, and in terms of bandwidth it's actually cheaper by three bytes on every message so we've we've tried to hold the bar of non-inferiority that, that doesn't mean that there aren't sometimes situations where it's okay to pay a little bit more in compute or bandwidth to gain something it's a trade-off we have to make uh, but as as of now, as the proposal stands, uh, the users will not see uh, increased computational or bandwidth costs based on our benchmarks. Yeah, it, bandwidth definitely. <laughs> computation is a benchmark. Yeah, I think our goal wasn't improving bandwidth or improving computation, but we wanted to make it design it in such a way that it having worse bandwidth or computation wouldn't be an argument against it. Um, uh, that's this non-inferiority thing. With the caveat that on sort of the, the primary cost in processing things on in a transport protocol today is that every message has this four byte checksum, which is double shot to fifty six over the whole message, uh, and that's actually the the majority of the costs. Now SHA two fifty six is relatively slow, except on hardware that has specific acceleration for it, and. Uh, so very modern uh, Intel and AMD CPUs uh, and, and some ARM CPUs do have hardware acceleration for SHA-256 directly. So on those platforms, you will see a degradation. But I mean, we're, we're talking in the order of, you know, nanoseconds per byte or, or, or less. Yeah. Yeah, let, let let me stress this point maybe. Like even even if we couldn't make or couldn't combine like our encryption proposal with those optimizations um encryption is really really cheap the kind of encryption that, that we're deploying here um i think a similar debate was, was happening i don't know uh, a decade ago when people were trying to enable https as compared to http and, and some system administrators were concerned that it was would increase the load on their servers and yes it, it increases the load but maybe by by one percent or something like this so it's yeah. really Encryption usually is is not a is not a big concern for um, yeah. in terms of computation. Now, some listeners might also be thinking about whether BIP three two four and the V two protocol here has any impact for users who want to use, let's say, Tor or I two P. As I understand, there's no impact on those users, but could you just explain or elaborate? Yeah, so Tor or I2P, these are transports that are available similar to TCP, ClearNet TCP IP. And so what BIP324 is doing is it's encrypting before sending on any transport and decrypting after receiving on any transport. So sure, you can take a completely pseudo-random byte stream and do the, onion, the encryption and onion routing that Tor does, um, and it would work just fine. It's, it's think of it like the deepest layer of that onion, right? It's the it's the innermost thing, and you don't have to worry about it. So it can use any transport. We're just changing the byte stream, and you can send it on the transport of your choice. Yeah, I think maybe a, a more interesting question is, well, uh, why don't we use Tor or say uh, WireGuard or existing protocols to, to accomplish what we're trying to do with BIP324? And in the case of Tor, I think there's a very easy answer. Like Tor comes with significant latency increases, some bandwidth increases, significant computational costs, uh, reliability questions. The fact that Tor is essentially a centralized network with you know centrally run directory servers. Um, there are many good reasons why you wouldn't want to use Tor for everything. There are very good reasons why you do want to use it, but they don't apply 
all the time. And we really want to make something that works for every connection. The wider question, like well, why not use mechanisms like TLS or noise that are sort of general purpose transport layer encryption? I, I think that the the best argument for that is they incur a very significant complexity because they are centered around trying to connect to someone you know you're trying to connect to. So uh, a, a lot of the complexity in these protocols is around authentication, and they, they go through sometimes extensive steps to get this authentication done at, as fast as possible. Um, because, you know, if you're loading a web website, you, you care that there's not going, 10 messages going back and forth before your image starts loading. And, and so they have a lot of complexity for dealing with this authentication question. And we are really trying to build a protocol that doesn't care about this at all. And so we want to avoid the complexity and you know, the, all the infrastructure that goes along with it, because we, we, we can't have it. Like, we, we'd need to, like, stub it out or, or use fixed public keys or something. Uh, and and so we, we can design a much simpler protocol. Plus, we can aim for the pseudo-randomness from the very beginning, which is not something that protocols today have, except as, you know, optional extensions or, or uh, for use in, in some fairly obscure things and also we want zero configuration it yeah. should just be enabled by default you spin up your node and you you get um, opportunistic encryption um, without any need to i don't know configure certificates public keys yeah so as i understand then it's about what's suitable for the network as a whole or the average the everyday user as opposed to the more highly privacy conscious user who may be using other things on top or more comfortable to do manual configuration as i understand exactly, it. yeah. it's also yeah. it's also this point that privacy has like some transitive properties like it becomes harder for me to be private if you are not taking your privacy seriously and so that's why the default setting like yes people who want to be private they are going through, through all these measures but even they might have more leaks because everybody else is not doing that and so when you can do something by default uh, so you make it opt out instead of opt in, then uh, the transitive benefits of privacy really can ripple through the network. Eventually. Okay, great. Potentially. Yeah. Eventually. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of this BIP324 and I guess kind of timeline it would be for people that, that this might potentially appear in Bitcoin Core, what kind of timeline are you looking at? Uh, that's, I mean, in Bitcoin Core, that, that's, a, that's a hard question to answer. Um, the, the BIP is out there for public review. We have received a couple comments so far, nothing, nothing huge so far. Uh, there are also a couple of conversations we are still having about improvements that have come up within the working group. The code is all out there. So this is something I want to stress is uh, but there are people, I think there are like about eight or 10 people now running V2 nodes. And because this is opportunistic encryption, you can run it on mainnet. We don't have to, we don't have to go through something, some very complex testing phased thing. So people are running it, you know, James O'Byrne, uh, Rot13, Maxi, on, there have been a couple threads on Twitter. There are adders available. I'm happy to help people get set up with nodes. But it's there, people are testing it. There is significant enthusiasm in the community about it. But the bottleneck, uh, as with most Bitcoin projects, is going to end up being review. And uh, it's yeah. hard to, it's, at least for me, it's hard to of predict course. the timeline. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I think, I think there's, there's good momentum and like interest in it, like cautiously optimistic, yeah. I'd say. Sure. So uh, for people who want to get involved, what's the best way for people who are interested or if they want to find out more? What, what kind of uh, resources would you point them to and what kinds of things are you hoping people do? Yeah, so the primary resource I want to point people to is BIP324.com. That's one place they can go read the history. They can go get links to the BIPs. They can go get links to the PRs. There's a nice chart of the dependencies between the PRs. So if you want to start reviewing code, where to start and where to go, it's all laid out there. That's BIP324.com. And I think for people that are already embedded in the ecosystem and uh, reviewing PRs, code review is the mo most helpful thing to do. And for people that are kind of want to help in other ways, uh, testing is the most helpful thing to do. So take that branch, the instructions for running the node and what to do are on uh, the PR is 24545. 
um, the peers, potential BIP324 supportive peers are listed there. Yeah, r- run it on mainnet. Tell us on you know Twitter or GitHub or wherever you want if it's working well, and especially if it's not working well. And um, yeah. Also, I would encourage people to just read the BIP. Like the, we we put a lot of effort into clearly explaining the rationale for lots of design decisions, and a substantial portion of the BIP isn't all that technical uh, in details. It's just text explaining why these choices are made. Uh, I think that is interesting as well, even if you don't care about the nitty-gritty details of how the encryption works. Fantastic. Well, I think that's probably a good spot to finish up. So, uh, yeah, we'll leave that there. I'll put all the links in the show notes. So, uh, bip324.com. And uh, thank you, Drew, Peter, and Tim for joining me today. Yeah, it was great. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Yeah. Get the show notes at stefanlibera.com slash 433. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the Citadels.